Hi there, thanks for joining me on Influencers Cafe. Today on the show we have David Campanelli, who's a repeat guest who recently stood for election with the Liberal Democrats and we're going to catch up with them on how it went. Thank you. So, the last time we talked, David was just starting his election campaign with the Liberal Democrats and uh, today we're just going to talk about what kind of, how difficult that is and the processes around standing for Parliament and uh, just his experience. Well, the experience has been positive. I mean, I credit to my employer in that they, um, I went off the books for a period, obviously the BBC's impartial. And there's a widespread of political opinion amongst staff, as you can imagine, in any workplace. Um, so they sort of let me go with um, without too much trouble, so I'm grateful for that. Um, obviously, I didn't get elected, so my job was still open for me when I returned. So I'm back in working on uh, a channel that isn't seen in the UK as it carries commercials and it's broadcast internationally. But the actual experience of the election was clearly I didn't win, so in a sense I'm, I'm disappointed by that. But in a five, six week campaign I trebled the party vote. Cable, so, huh? Yeah. So the previous candidate had polled 5% and I polled 15% and that was... Um, almost a third above what the National Party vote was as well. So who, who, who won the election? About a quarter. Yeah. Hmm? Who won the election there? Okay, so in the district I was standing was in North Surrey, right. called Spelthorne. Right. So it's a slightly unusual constituency in that it's sort of not quite County Surrey in the sort of rural sense in, in most part. Um, as a large part of the uh, re- residents live near the airport, Heathrow Airport. So it's an, a constituency that's made up a fifth of water because of um, West London's reservoirs feature very strongly on the river there. A fifth there. of water, yeah. so you've got lots of large reservoirs holding water, which is for treatment or distribution. Right. Um, so it was a... But it's on the edge of a town where I grew up. So if anyone's familiar with West London, you've got the borough of Richmond and some nice sort of places along the river and I grew up in a little village I'd previously grown up in Hampton on Thames and the constituency in which I was selected to stand for the Liberal Democrats was in Spelthorne which is what sits adjacent so I was going from all those areas all the way into uh, further down the river is Lib Dem territory so Richmond, Twickenham, Kingston are all held by the Liberal Democrats and I was hoping to take the seat in Spelthorne and then across the river um, the Liberal Democrats were hopeful of definitely gaining Isha, but as we all know, neither was to happen. And the Liberal Democrats uh, didn't get uh, to have a particularly successful election in terms of seats, but we were the only party to significantly increase our vote. So over a million extra people voted for the Liberal Democrats in 2019 compared to the last time there was a contest. So what did it have to do to become a... Uh a candidate for a seat? So this is the great mystery, I mean, the, which I'll hopefully kind of unravel and unpack while we're talking together. So for most political parties, um, you'd think they'd already be geared up, ready to fight elections at any moment. That's not quite how it works. And so there are lots of constituencies where there were no candidates in place um, from the previous election. 
both in the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats and Greens. So they were selecting really, in some cases, right up until the last moment. In fact, Labour didn't choose their candidate in Spellthorn until really like a few days before nominations open. So um, I was waiting for this particular constituency to be advertised. And then when I saw it, that it, they were inviting applicants, I decided to go for it. Not because I thought it was the most obviously winnable seat, but because it was an area that I had some connections to. Um, so when I was a kid, I used to play along the river in Sunbury and Thames, which is in the constituency. My mum would take myself and my brothers down to paddle in the River Thames. And so for me, it was uh, a good thing to be able to do, to campaign and dig in. And it's also a great sort of honour, really, to stand for a political party in the British parliamentary system and it is around the world we sort of forget that so many countries look to Britain as being the kind of gold standard for democracy. So for me it's a huge it's like a huge investment of time to just like dedicate to something that you might not win or even it's unlikely that you'll win. So that's right. I mean when psychologically when, so I was up against another candidate and we went through hustings for the Liberal Democrats just to be selected. And there was, I, what was really positive was just how welcoming people were. There was a good turnout of Liberal Democrat members. And um, I must admit, I came through thinking, oh my goodness, what have I done? You know, have I, you know, has it dawned on me that I might actually get selected and that therefore I ought to honour that and give it my give it 100%. It's like five years of your life, yeah. Well, there's that, but also... You know, no one, what you've got to work out is no one actually pays you to do this and you do it all in your own time. And you can spend a lot of your own money, family money and friends' money, and then, of course, you get nowhere and people would sort of say, well, what was all that about? Yeah. Um, wasn't that just a waste of time, you know? But then that's true. There are no prizes in British politics for coming second anywhere, um, yeah. in parliamentary elections at least. So all over the country there were people, you know, aspiring to get elected. There were MPs who'd been already elected who were standing, hoping to get back in. Of course, loads of them lost their seats. And it's, you know, it's... We haven't, have to remember there are members of Parliament who didn't particularly have... You know, they haven't got directorships, you know, they haven't got a fantastic career at the bar or businesses, but these are people ordin earning ordinary salaries who got elected and then are back at the job centre. I mean, literally, you know, people who've been MPs back at the job centre. But they will know that they're not expecting the public to be sorry for them. I'm just sort of saying that is the price you pay for being enthusiastic about the idea of our democratic system. It seems to me that you have to have a passion for what, for what you believe in in terms of policy because, I, I, could, I mean, I don't have anything in Fulham that I'm so desperate about that I could campaign for a thousand hours you know, like look at the sure. super sewers going on. There's sure. trucks going up and down. There's some, but I, I, I can't really see. I mean, it's, it's it's like like everything. There are lots of different motivations that people have. Some people just love the buzz of 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 competing. Um, so they like the an electoral contest. Like you know, they might play soccer. You know, they get a buzz out of of making progress, and obviously they get a big kick in, if they actually end up winning, and then being able to serve and represent their constituents. Those kind of feelings weren't my motivation. It was very much about seeing huge injustices in Britain and wanting to be able to address those, being concerned about the threat of climate change. There was a big constituency issue for us of the proposed expansion of Heathrow Airport. 
and the Liberal Democrat position is to oppose that on the grounds of noise and air pollution, but particularly because Heathrow is the UK's single biggest source of CO2 emissions. And obviously, if you're expanding the airport, if you're going to have six, seven hundred aeroplanes, additional aeroplanes a day, then um, the carbon footprint is going to be uh, dramatically changed and widened. So that, for me, being concerned about the planet, being concerned about fellow human beings, has always been my motivation to, uh, for politics. Is there any comparisons between automobiles and airplanes, like automobiles including all automobiles like buses and lorries? Versus it's just the size and, and, and the source of it. It's you know at the end of the day, it's carbon in the air. Yeah. So whether it's coming from the, at the back of a combustion engine or coming from airplane jet engines, yeah. I mean the problem is about air is that we would say, or it's argued, that the, the cost of air aviation isn't properly factored into the price of an air ticket. So you pay VAT on fuel in cars, um, whereas you don't pay the same amount of VAT on fuel for aeroplanes. It's set at 5% compared to 17.5%, 20%. So I thought aeroplanes were zero rated. Sorry? I thought aeroplanes were zero rated. No, I think it's a, it's a, a VAT on jet fuel, is, I think it's oh, a jet above, fuel, yeah, right. is, is above that. So obviously, you know, those are the kind of issues that we talked about. People very worried about climate change and the evidence of dramatic weather events around the globe connected to rising CO2 emissions. So there's loads of things to campaign on. Um, but I just love, and it's really cheesy, but I love being on the doorsteps, talking to people and engaging with people and listening to their concerns. And um, I mean, one instance came to mind was just canvassing down the street in, um, in Staines. And I was with a group of friends out canvassing, you know, party colleagues and stuff, bang on doors. Staines is not your area, right? Or is no, it's a Staines district, Ashford, Staines, Sunbury, Shepparton, Laylam, uh, Stanwell, all form part of the constituency. So all these... Are, are yours? Yeah. So I still work in Staines, Centrica. Okay. So these are um, towns in the constituency. Yeah, I know Staines well. I know, I know all that whole place very well. Okay, well, nice. the, the, yeah, it is nice. Egon, it's it's no, beautiful. That's just adjacent. So it runs, the constituency runs from the River Thames all the way up to Heathrow Airport. But I was banging on doors in Staines and... Um, because of Brexit, people very, feel very strongly. So some people would be welcoming to you. Others would say, get, get lost, you know. And there was one particularly la- lady who said to uh, one of my friends who was canvassing, you know, I really don't want to talk to you. Get lost, get stuffed. And he came over and said, well, this particular lady was a bit distraught. And that's how it is. I said, well, that's how it is. You have to accept the public are entitled to give their view and the way that they feel what they want to put it across you know yeah. we've just got to take it on the chin and accept that's what democracy is about but then her um i got called back to the gate there's this other guy said look she wants she's come out from her house and she wants to talk to the candidate so i went back and i thought well she's given my friend a mouthful and she wants to give me the other barrel you know give a, a double barrel shot yeah. i thought okay let's just let's just take it and um She'd come, I went to the door and she said, look, I just want to say how sorry I am that I was rude to your friend. And I was sort of taken aback. And, uh, and then she said, well, would you like to come in? And one of the rules that the police were advising and party apparatus to all parties, not just the Lib Dems, was be very cautious about going in people's houses, you know, always go out canvassing with two people because this Brexit election has got nasty and people just 
feel very strongly about it. But I kind of felt... I would have thought that's the most fun part of the job, going to people's houses, you know? Well... Getting fed all sorts of things and cakes and is, stuff. Is, the aim of canvassing isn't to convince people of, to, to your point of view, the aim of canvassing is to identify where your vote is with a view to getting them out. Um, I wasn't canvassing in order to get them out on the day of the election to make sure they vote for me. I just wanted to get a sense of what my support was, but also I wanted to get stake boards up in people's gardens to advertise the fact that I was really fighting for the seat. So stake boards are when people put like posters on the end of great big poles and stick them in gardens, and they're very effective in capturing the attention of members of the public driving past or on buses. So I went in, and this lady, she sat down, and she said, I'm so sorry, but I'm dying of cancer. And um, I want you to talk to me about the things I'm worried about. But it was pretty evident she was really cut up about, that was for me, that was for her what she wanted to talk about. Now, as a politician, how do you engage with somebody who's telling you that she's dying? You know, It puts everything into context, you know, and... Um, uh, we just sort of I just held her hand and just listened and and it you what know it was a doing? very humbling thing because you realise actually when it comes down to it um, first will people invest some kind of hope in what they want politicians to do and obviously the NHS was a really big issue but then on the other side it reminds us that politics is you know it's limited in what you can do and what matters too are people's quality of relationships the humanity about our communities whether people feel um, that there's a neighbour or someone they can talk to and this person looked to me as someone that she could share her problems with and talk to um, yeah, for me politics hasn't really I haven't really felt the change from one party to the other okay when there's the war like the biggest probably the biggest political issue that affected me as a young person was the, the Iraq war sure. right but um you think that democracy, in a sense, its biggest function is to pre- prevent dictatorships? It sort of smooths out everything, but it, it prevents... It, it, it does. Um, the thing about our electoral system in the UK is that we have the potential of a dictatorship in the sense that once you form a government and you have a majority of MPs, you literally can do what you want. Um, because the House of Lords is a reforming institution and the tradition is as if what you're proposing is reflected by and large in your manifesto, um, you can, you know, no parliament can bind its successor. That means that there's nothing one parliament can do to limit the actions of a future one. And Boris Johnson has a 80 majority and he's now free to literally to do what he wants if he can get it past parliament. Because there's momentum there, right? So like... He, well, there's no. There's the point is, is he's got a majority of MPs, and yeah. there's nothing that will can stop him. But that, that's not that that's not allowing him to enforce his beliefs beyond the next election. So what was it to say? Yeah. So, so the the fixed term Parliament Act has now been repealed. So there is no there's no definite five year limit. He can call an election tomorrow if he wanted, as long as you know he got a majority for that amongst so his own side. There's not the. F- Fixed term parliament, five years? No, so that's one of the things the government, the Conservatives, uh, are abolishing. What? Um, yeah. So, are So, because what it did, what we had with the last parliament, was you needed a two-thirds majority or um, to call for an early election between in a five-year period. And um, MPs refused to give Boris the election he wanted. And this is one of the th- lessons that painfully was learned by the Liberal Democrats 
in this general election, arguably the Labour Party, they didn't have to give Boris his single issue pre-Christmas election. Um, but the Liberal Democrats chose to fight Boris on the issue of Brexit. And under our first-past-the-system, although the Liberal, Democrat, Liberal Democrats increased the party's votes, and if you look at the totality of how votes went for the Greens, Labour, the SNP and the Liberals, um, there were more Remain votes than there were Brexit votes. The way in which it turned out was that Boris and the Brexit party stroke Conservative party are now the same thing, won their majority. So when is the next general election going to happen in the UK? Um, I think that Boris will fight. Um, he will. Um, he will serve the full five-year term. Yeah. And he will expect to fight the next election, and with the expectation of winning it. Well, he doesn't have to do a general election. So it's up to him. He will have to have an election in five years. I thought the fixed term thing was abolished. That's abolished, but the tradition is that you have it in five years. What the point about the fixed term act was that you could only dissolve parliament if you had the support of MPs to do that. If you didn't have the support under the terms of the Fixed Term Parliament Act, you couldn't have an election. That's right. why Boris wasn't able to call an election when he wanted it. Right. So this time, all he has to do is go to the Queen and say, I want a dissolution of Parliament. And um, it's tradition that the Queen or the monarch concedes the dissolution. So that's why we know it's entirely up to Boris when he wants an election, but he'll certainly have to have one in five years. All right, OK. I, know yeah. I, I, mis I misunderstood that, and I was like, what? Is yeah, that, yeah. That, that's what they do in no, other no, countries. No, he, he'll keep it going for five, I, I reckon. He'll, he'll, he'll want to do a lot. The thing will be, if, if the Brexit negotiations and the new terms of trade that Britain will have to settle with the European Union cause an economic disruption or political yeah. chaos, and we'll have to wait and see about that. Are we allowed to talk about Brexit? Hmm? Are we allowed to talk about Brexit? I'm allowed to describe the experience of, of me standing in, <laughs> right, the, right, in right. the elections, but at the moment I will not express a view about right, how the right. current negotiations are going or will likely to go. So approximately how many hours did you dedicate to the election from start to finish? OK, so because it was a Christmas election, people say to me, oh, it must be so tiring backing, banging on the doors because it was freezing cold and, of course, it was night time by four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And the answer is, if I'm honest, I fought this election from the sofa. So what that means is, is that I fought it online. So one of, I formed together a team because I reckon that I couldn't get round every door. And in five weeks, I didn't even think I could deliver one leaflet to the 40,000 houses. We only had the capacity as Lib Dems in where we got councillors in Spilthorpe to deliver leaflets to 20,000 homes. I absolutely hate doing that kind of work. It's fine. It's I, good. I, 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 like I, jogging, I you just jog it. around. Oh, um, dear me. Until you meet people to tell you to jog I, I, I delivered a lot of leaflets for, for the, the mayoral election. Okay. I'm so tired of that, yeah. Okay. So the um, challenge was to get around the doors, but we could only do 20,000. Um, so I said to the team, look, why don't we just rely on the Facebook algorithms? Because you, the genius of Facebook, is that you you can pay if you want to for just the, for your messaging to go out in the postcodes that you want it to go. So I looked up all the postcodes that were in the Spelthorn constituency. It wasn't just me who did this. Loads of party candidates did this in the general election. Yeah. You then produce social media content. So it could be a 50-second message on your on your iPhone that you just upload, or crafted videos, or it could be memes, it could be graphics, it could be all sorts of different messaging. You then pay Facebook to promote it as an advert, or you post it on your Facebook page. So I had a, and if people want to have a look, it's um, 
uh, it's David Campanali for MP on Facebook. Yeah, um, I'll leave a link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, so you can check that out, what we actually did. And you post it, your content on your Facebook page. You then pay Facebook to boost it, and it then appears in the feeds of everybody living in that in the postcodes that you're targeting at. But it works better than that. You can target people by age, by sex, by interest. So we were getting so much negative reaction from particular um, demographics that we were saying, well, there's no point trying to flog, you know, spend money in targeting that demographic, particularly if our audience is younger. So a lot of younger people were voting or sympathetic to the Lib Dems because of our climate policies, taking climate change seriously, or because they wanted to stay in the European Union, or because they liked our policies on mental health. Uh, so we generated specific messages and then um, fought the campaign online. So my video on the NHS got 17,000 views, my one on trade in Europe at the Remain March demo that happened in the centre of London, that had sort of 14, 15,000 views. I did something on the police cuts in Surrey that had 12,000. So, so these videos won't be shown to demographics outside of that? If you were, you can access it, obviously. Right. And there's always spillover. So there were people messaging me from the other side of the river in Weybridge. Right. Because um, they were getting my content in their news feeds. <laughs> but that's how it works. But at the end of the campaign, somebody from my teams um, saw some national analysis. And apparently I was... Not apparently, I am, was the, in the top 10 spenders of any individual candidate in the whole general election on Facebook. Right, okay. So we reached, we reached 70, 85,000 people, or in, that's not necessarily individuals, it could be the same people over again, but because um, not everyone's obviously on Facebook. But that's how modern day elections are fought these days on social media. In America, media. millions and millions of pounds are spent on social media yeah. for that kind of stuff. So we were putting stuff out on Instagram, um, on Twitter, and on Facebook. So that's yeah. where our spending was. It's all transparent. Everything you spend in an election has to be accounted for. So none of the dark arts. Yeah. So like, you had all that Cambridge Analytical stuff that's kind of scary. How did you avoid any of that controversy? Well, that's because they've... Opt- the allegation is they obtained third-party data and used it to target right. their messages. We didn't have any data at all. So what you're doing is you're considering how people have voted in the past in particular districts. You're looking at, if I'm frank, the kind of um, social um, demographics of people just by the type of housing and estates. And you're wanting to obviously be relevant to people and talk about things that you reckon that they're going to be interested in. Yeah, so Cambridge were probably looking at just, like, yeah, for party data, which is... And they were a lot smarter. I mean, they were obviously trying to twist people in lots of... The allegation is that their clients were trying to twist people around to particular points of view using um, data that had been harvested from other sources. For me, all I had to go on was the fact... I mean, I didn't have anyone's individual data... All I knew was that Facebook were going to put my content in people's feeds who lived in the constituency, and I was just hoping that people were going to be interested. That's, you're quite, I'm quite impressed with your technical knowledge there. Well, you have to, it has to make sense on camera. Yeah. So the thing, if you can imagine, I can't talk to people on the doorsteps, but the glory of television, so I work in the TV industry, is that when your TV's on in, in the lounge, it's like someone's in, in your room talking to you. Radio has that effect as well. Yeah. And it's slightly more personable. So you're not, you know, loads of politicians shove leaflets through doors. And leaflets do work. 
people like to sit down and flick through, but loads of other people aren't getting their information through leaflets. Yeah. They're getting it through their Facebook feeds, through their social media. They're getting it from TV, but they're watching TV maybe on their laptops. So the thing about Facebook is I was recording one minute, one and a half minute videos. I was, because I had a fantastic volunteer team who specialised in graphics and editing. We were putting on graphics and messaging, so everything was translated so the words were on the screen. I was picking out key data about police cuts in Surrey, about NHS cuts, talking about specific issues relevant to Spellthorn. Yeah. And you could visualise, you can view that on my videos on the Facebook Could be the Lib Dems go-to guy now for the next election, like the guy well, Some does. people have been asking how I did it because they, we had a... I was just blessed to have... Um, people in the in the local party who work in marketing so i have a facebook professional who did all that for free i had somebody who's a marketing professional he runs his own marketing company he said look leave i'll come up with a spreadsheet when to fire videos when to promote particular messages at which time and let's try it's what they call a b test particular messages to different audiences and see what works and that's because they were that's what they're professional background is in. Yes, they you see the expenses I had, a, I had a photographer who just was was um, a party volunteer who did all of that kind of stuff. So the, um, the, the inputs and the advice I got was tremendous. People who were, you know, um, amateur photographers who nifty with a camera. I mean, most of the stuff was done on iPhones or with maybe, you know, one or two stages up in terms of quality kit. And I'd be out on a demo, on a march, I'd be out outside a hospital, I'd be talking to members of the public, and you just turn that into attractive video content. And then when somebody plays it on their laptop or is watching it on the phone, it's like I'm talking to them, they get an idea of who I am, what my interests are, what kind of personality I am. And, you know, some people even thought they liked me. They're the people who voted for me. Cool. So what's, what's next in politics, or is it can't say yet? Well, I'm, um, I'm going to encourage people to serve the community in, in politics and pick up you know, the very big issues that the country faces. So I'll be behind the scenes encouraging people to go out and um, try and get elected at county level and ultimately in borough level because there's lots of different tiers of government. Uh, to just to campaign. I mean, Extinction Rebellion had a rally in Staines during the course of the election, and I engaged with, with them. Um, and we also had a climate rally as well. We had a UN climate change negotiator come and speak at, on my behalf. And we certainly made climate one of the big issues of the campaign as well. For. A UN climate change negotiator? Yeah. What, 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 how does that work? So here's a guy who's a lawyer... He was asked by some of the Pacific countries to turn up at UN climate talks to propose ideas that would become binding obligations on the signatories to the conventions. UN climate talks, that's something that's in the UN headquarters? or No, they'd be around the world. These climate talks would happen in different countries. So basically, the, the world is recognising that it's only got a matter of years to um, tackle and to minimise CO2 emissions. So... The latest data I've seen is that we've got 11 and a half years to uh, go to net zero or absolute zero in terms of CO2 emissions, beyond which the world will enter into an irreversible cycle of climate change. So, How can it be irreversible? You just can't just regrow trees and things like that? You can certainly suck 
carbon out of the air, the issue is how fast those trees grow. And the problem is that um, the carbon extraction resources, the facilities that are known as carbon capture plants, can't be built fast enough. These are like a billion quid a piece. You can't, they can't be built fast enough to sequester sufficient CO2 from the, from the air. So when you say irreversible, how is, that, how, is something, how is something like so, irreversible? So the way that the scientists argue is a classic case is the Arctic tundra. So large parts of Siberia is frozen wasteland, or is frozen land covered with permafrost. Hidden under the permafrost are wheat, um, peat bogs and rotted vegetation. The moment the frost on top melts, all the CO2 that's captured underneath starts to enter the atmosphere, which in turn kicks forward the cycle of more warming so that the icebergs melt and all the water that's tied up in the icebergs causes the sea levels to rise and the sea levels will ri- are projected to rise quite sig- considerably before the end of the century just because of melting of the icebergs. So you've got the permafrost effect, so CO2 coming out of the peat bogs. Um, because of the way, way in which rainforest in the Amazon and the Congo Basin and in Asia has been cut down, that's rainforest that's not absorbing CO2 which in turn means that you've got more of the stuff going around in the atmosphere. So that's why we've got to plant lots of trees. We've got to cut back on our uh, transport-related CO2 emissions and obviously um, the oil and the gas that's used for heating and for other purposes, plastics. So at at some point in in time, this peat bog carbon would have been in the atmosphere anyway, so... No, the point is some game, no? no, the point is that it's hidden under permafrost that's been for, there for millennia. So large parts of the world which have been frozen under ice has captured that CO2 underneath the frost. But the moment the frost melts, then you've got problems. And then you get into an irreversible cycle. You can't stop the cycle getting worse and worse because uh, it releases new... What I'm saying is that one event is not linear... It, one event can trigger lots of unexpected but connected events. That's why we've got to err on the side of caution. I do agree we should de- definitely plant more trees, and I think there's, there's ways that we can reclaim some of the, some of the desert from, from the Greenland outwards. You know, it's, uh... But what we're talking about is, sounds complex, but it's straight, straightforward science um, that most scientists, 98% of scientists, recognise. And increasingly, members of the public see you know, these news reports from Australia being on fire. They see the Amazon being cut down. They see t- t- extraordinary weather events in Europe, in Africa. Um, temperatures rising twice as fast in Africa than any other part of the world. And we've now today seen reports of locusts in Kenya. I mean, there's all sorts of, of inter... And they've not had rain in a year, and then there was rain, and after the rain there were the locusts. So there are all sorts of, of connected events to do with extreme weather, in turn linked to uh, rising air temperatures. Mm-hmm. So these are complex things, but generally what was this election was about was one story, that was Brexit. So Heathrow Airport, if there was another runway, then the amount of time that aeroplanes would have to circle around would be, would be reduced. Sometimes planes are spending that much extra time because there isn't a third runway. Well, what we've got to realise is that the demand for aircraft, short-haul aircraft, and even long-haul is increasing. And so... so we, People say when you 
have a thin road going through a village and you expand the road so you knock things down to make the road, road wider so you don't get blockages and hold-ups what actually happens is that more car drivers think hey that's easy to go through now let's head down that road until you get the congestion again so when you increase the supply <coughs> the demand rises to meet the supply so when you increase the supply of air travel 700 extra planes a day and it becomes cheaper or more accessible then it increases the demand for those flights so actually i don't anticipate um, aircraft circling above the capital above london necessarily decreasing because there'll be more they'll just be rising it's a good argument it's a good argument because the thing is people are becoming wealthier they're taking more holidays and i mean i'm saying that people who can afford to travel there are more people who can afford to travel not everyone is wealthy most flights are actually taken by just 15 percent of the population the majority of the british public don't fly at all 15 percent only 15 most flights in britain are taken by 15 percent of the population of those of population of those who fly so I, I fly on average once a week. Okay, well then you'd fall into that category. Yeah. Mm. Cool, so you, you also be traveling as well. Uh, you wanna talk about that But Yeah, so, so the end of the election, um, all this Facebook stuff, the messaging, working with members of the team, doing some canvassing, doing some leaflets. At the end of the day, there wasn't anything I could do that would mean it was winnable. It shouldn't have been a Christmas election. The Lib Dems shouldn't have fought it on the basis of, on Boris's terms. Um, people said that the Lib Dems were hubristic and top-down, and I think the party will have to listen to that criticism. Um, but life doesn't end when you lose an election. Um, the Liberal Democrats obviously increased their vote considerably, and they've got a platform to build again for the future, and certainly I'll be interested in promoting some of the more positive messages. I think they've got to change some of their messages um, and get closer to what the public want from us. Um, there are lots of things we can talk about around that. But for me, the morning of the election, I, um, the announcement was at five o'clock and at eight o'clock, I was myself taking a flight uh, to speak in Transylvania as I was invited as a guest speaker at a conference remembering 30 years of the Romanian Revolution because I was there 30 years ago um, in Romania and Transylvania. So the people who are at the front of that revolution, people like Laszlo Turkish, asked me to go over and speak about uh, speak at their commemorations. What, what kind of stuff did you speak about? So I was asked to speak as a journalist um, and talk about the news media and revolution. So I spoke about my own experience 30 years ago. So originally I filmed for ITN during the Ceausescu years, so during the communist years. I went in secretly and filmed behind the Iron Curtain inside Romania, got the materials smuggled out and um, was then broadcast on British TV. And then a few months later I went back um, for ITN of the Times. But because um, I was in um, three car crashes on the way there, I decided... When was this? So this was December 1989. Right. I was driving from London to get there. I decided that maybe it wasn't meant to be for me to cross over because there was gunfire and shooting and I kind of thought, uh, you know, maybe it's gunfire. just not meant to be. So, well, you know, that, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people were killed in the Romanian yeah. Revolution. It was the one country of all the Iron Curtain, the communist states. They weren't shooting at you, though. No, but I didn't want to get caught in the crossfire, yeah. as journalists have a habit of doing. So 
I stayed behind in Budapest until Nikolai Ceausescu, the dictator, was executed. And then the day after, I travelled over. And in fact, I didn't actually end up doing any journalism. I put my politics hat on and spoke at rallies of young people on um, how to build a democracy. Nice. And you went to, did you go to Ukraine as well? Ukraine was uh, 18 months ago, okay, right. but that, that was linked to a festival that I founded in that 1989 period. So right. one of the things I'm uh, talking to these young students in, in Romania, they were saying, look, you know, we've now got our freedom, what do we do next? And so I was almost giving like short talks, historical talks on um, how you build a democracy, or at least how Britain has developed a, a free and open society governed by the rule of law and an active constitution. But then I talked about some of the deeper values without which a constitution or a new political order won't succeed. So because we, I was speaking in a city called Shepsi San George or Svantu Georgi in the Romanian, St. George in the English, I talked about the inspiration of St. George in terms of his Christian martyrdom and his values and how those the kind of sacrificial values that would shape a successful democracy. So we kicked off a festival. I came up with the idea of a... So they said, well, how do we do this? I said, well, why don't you have like a summer university camping for a week, get together with your mates, but put on music and dance and have fun. So study together and reflect on politics, I guess, particularly from a Christian worldview, but connect it with having fun. So in 1990, so they had their first event, 200 students were there and there were English speakers that I helped organise get there and then last year the 30th anniversary 80,000 people attended the festival nice one so it's a cross between the Cheltenham Literary Festival and Glastonbury right. so you have rock music from the main stage lots of side stages and tents so during the day there would be literary events like speaker events and speaker panels and on lots of different issues but in the in the evening it would be partying and beer and and um, everything that students have have fun doing. Yeah. All the volunteers come from the local churches, um, and then the event in Ukraine is a spin-off from that. Um, they also have a smaller version, I think, in Slovakia. So there's a kind of opportunity to discuss politics, but from a fun perspective. And I think maybe if you are to ask me what what Britain is doing wrong when it comes to politics maybe we need to make it a bit more fun and connect it with fun activities I know Labour tried to give that a go under Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 and it yeah. was a bit of a flop so it's got to be a lot more organic than that Well they, they have the foot going late here at BBC because I guess they do the news every hour right like do they, do they have reporters here like 24-7 right Absolutely yeah so it's a 24 hour newsroom 24 hour kitchen 24-hour kitchen, absolutely it is. So people, when they want to have their breakfasts, get their breakfasts. So when I'm on the night shift, that's where I'm having my breakfast. Night, you do night shift? Yeah, every so often, yeah. I mean, it's a 24-hour newsroom. Come on. Well, it's, uh, I guess you're wanting to get back home after the long week, yeah? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool, David. Well, great to have you on the show again. Good to, get, okay. good to catch up. Cheers. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Nikos from Infancy's Cafe with David Campanelli. 
and we'll see you again shortly. Bye-bye.